Delta to the Falls, from the Grotto to the newly constructed Defense Ministry Building, nothing captures the rhythm of Equatorial Fredonia like Cadre cigarettes. Never a rough puff with Cadre, sponsors of the Committee Program. Okay, so first off, let's tilt down. Let's tilt down. My camera? Your, yeah, the computer or this, whatever it is. Which one? So just so that it's like about this much, about one scooch between the top of your head and the top of the frame. And because you decided My, not to dress up for the show also, it would be better just to get mostly your face. You know, I mean, it is. We're trying to run a show yeah, that... I did not. I'm not. We're trying, to, we're trying to run a show that reminds people of back when people gave a crap about being on shows. You know what I mean? So that's just sort of the vibe that we're trying to put out. I'm sorry, because you're like one step up from pajama bottoms right now. So let's be clear. <laughs> Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program with Aron Chaudhary, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. We join the show already in progress. Lines are open at the Committee Program Call Center in Cochiti Lake, New Mexico. Call 1-505-295-6546 or reach us on WhatsApp Signal and or the web link below. No problem too small to be considered. That's 1-505-295-6546. Operators are standing by to take your call and hear your problem. By calling you agree to allow the Committee Program to use your voice on the air in perpetuity throughout the universe. Thanks so much. Hi, and welcome to your committee program. This is one of our alternate study week uh, content episodes in which we will be watching an old film that's a piece of union propaganda, pro-union propaganda. We'll also be talking about targeting with Jamal Bickley King to kind of fill in some of the gap of what we actually mean when we're talking about digital Facebook targeting and some of the more insidious aspects of it, etc. Um, but first, wanted to introduce you to this new segment, which is Office Hours, in which we have opened up the committee call center in Coach D Lake, New Mexico, which you can always reach at uh, country code 1-505-295-6546. That's the committee call center in Coach D Lake, New Mexico. Our signal line is always open. Our WhatsApp line is always open. Our SMS line is always open. Uh, and so feel free to give us a call whenever. However, when you see that um, little clip that we just showed beforehand, that's when you know we're actually monitoring it live. And that is be the case when we go for an entire live episode, which we may do once this becomes a thing. Julia Double says, Double Day says this will not become a thing, but I insist it will become a thing. Uh, and then generally we'll be accumulating these and using them uh, as episodes and needs arise that address some of these issues. So we want to answer your questions, we want to answer them in context, and sometimes we want to answer them live. Okay? Uh, the reason we can't do that today is because, as you see, I'm in the middle of a training here in La Spezia, Genoa. Uh, La Spezia, Liguria. Sorry, La Spezia is down the street from Genoa. Uh, and I'm not able to be in the West Berlin Committee Studios, where we, of course, have technology to take the live calls in all of these many varieties. So that's what I have to say about that, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Lots of good stuff. Let's go straight to Jama, friend of the show, Jama Bickley-King. And now, going places and doing things. Hi, welcome back to the committee program. This is another edition, although we haven't done one yet this season, of going places and doing things where we get to the mechanics of actually how political communications practitioning happens and with us. It's friend of the show, Jamal Bickley King. Uh, last time you were on the show, you were in the wrong Virginia. You were in West Virginia. Are you back in your beloved Virginia? I am back in my beloved Virginia. Unfortunately, is under new management, and the guy is batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't seem to. All Unfortunately, many predictions that were made on this show have come true, and there is a Paul stalking the land. Uh, but speaking of a Paul, a Paul in all of our lives is certainly 
Facebook, the criminals who run it, et cetera. And actually, you had been mentioning uh, something about the conversion funnel. And recently on the show, actually, I butted heads a bit with Dr. Emma Bryant, who uh, is someone who studies Cambridge Analytical a lot. And I was sort of like, I, I think a lot of people, I think, don't totally understand. I'm not saying she doesn't, but I'm saying in our conversation and people talk to me about it, don't totally understand what it is Facebook is doing or what other people do on Facebook to do nefarious things, especially on behalf of the right wing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just sort of is this black box where it's like, and then something happens and then Nazis, you know, it's like, uh, and uh, you were mentioning to me how similar it is to the commercial world. You know, someone mentions the remarkable, I've now said it on the air, remarkable. All of you are about to be flooded with crazy ads for this thing. Uh, That's the digital writing tablet. Anyway, uh, how is that experience also the same as what is happening? Just break it down for us, real simple, so that we get it. But basically, I was when we were talking back and forth, I was saying how like the same conversion funnel to get you to buy shoes and uh, tires, beverages, Big Macs, whatever, movie tickets that they use in order to cadre cigarettes. The people cigarettes enjoy cadre <laughs> cigarettes. Exactly. They send it to like a group of like, you know, they'll send it to like, you know, a million, two million impressions. And that means how many static ads they'll put in front of somebody. And through that, they know they're going to get maybe a thousand, 500, 200 conversions of people actually buying the product and or service. Similarly, if you put like a million impressions in front of somebody with, who has like already been primed for disinformation or is not yet primed for disinformation, you're going to convert maybe 500, 200, 50 or whomever number of people to become radicalized or to to migrate and start putting them in the ladder of engagement and activation and and prime them for activation or activate them on social media using that same conversion funnel. And it's like, it's, it's not a matter of if they're doing is how much, how many of them will they convert and where are they? And this is where it like, it is gotten much more sophisticated. And you mentioned Cambridge Analytica, which is basically the analytics behind it. It, the analytics doesn't stop, doesn't like turn on the funnel. It just either means, are you going to get, you know, 500 people to convert or am I going to change it so it gets 540 people to convert or 480 people to convert? It's basically measuring and kind of doing the testing and changing the ratios and looking for that that mix of people in that custom universe that's going to be your initial people that are going to get impressions to get the most to get the most conversions on the back end of the funnel. And that's mainly what we're, I've been seeing and some others, uh, but it's been exasperated people. But here's my problem with that is that people look at it in, in a vacuum and they're not looking at the the setup work that was done to to really get that thing to move and accelerate and get a lot more conversion than you normally would. I think Charles Blow said it best. He said in order to have uh, people do despicable things, you need to take away their understanding and their apathy. You know, and then I also couple that with what Voltaire said. It says, in order for somebody to get you to commit atrocities, you have to get them to um, first believe in uh, absurdities. And, you know, you put all those together with the conversion funnel and you have this ready-made community who has already have, you know, vilifying empathy, vilifying understanding, believing in absurdities. All, and, and in that, you put that down there and they're ready to commit atrocities. And not only are they ready to commit the atrocities, they believe that they are righteous in doing so. Because in their worldview and in their reality, they are the hero. They're fighting lizard men, fifth column cabal of Democrats that are eating babies and sucking their stem cells. And they are the heroes trying to fight that while everybody is brainwashed but them. And that is the really scary part. And then you also have targeted atrocities. Like you have targeted absurdities against like our election apparatus. And so they're they're already committing atrocities against our democracy. Like they're, they are people who have run for office and they have changed laws. So no matter what happens, if it doesn't get the result they want, they can like totally throw out wholesale votes in some areas and or go back and change them. Because they believed in the absurdities the of those lives. Huh? In like in the customer service side, on the front end, is it, you know, or did it start out and is the acceleration due to some sort of 
technical know-how or the sort of data gathering uh, apparatus? Or is it a question of because right wing is so well resourced that you can just put a lot of effort or a lot of resource into what is not maybe the most efficient process, right? You're talking about getting a few conversions for thousands and thousands and thousands of folks. You know, this may not be the best way to sell soda pop, uh, but it may be the best way to create fascists. Well, right? it, it might not be cheap is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, it's not cheap, but here's the thing. It's like the, I believe this is where Russia did all the heavy lifting. It's like once you have that, algorithm picked out and once you have cultivated that core set of people once you know what you need to do and you've invested like the literal hundreds of millions of dollars and all this manpower into figuring out somebody all they have to do is look at what they did is the blueprint and then file and just chase it for literally an incredibly fraction of the cost and depending on if they have a large enough volunteer base almost no cost because the cpm cost on facebook is really really cheap so like if you can go ahead and start up a, a facebook page and then go ahead and you already know what you need to do for your custom universe of people to send out these ads because you have done all the prospecting digitally already it is easy to get them to activate and convert on doing something ridiculous or or actually commit an atrocity or support your candidate of choice whichever one comes first <laughs> but there's nothing special right about there's nothing special about the messages that become the most prevalent other than perhaps proclivity for polarization etc but what is it that sort of holds uh that holds the left back i guess in more strident uh online campaigns of information well, it's not that it is doesn't it just hit us also. Thing? Well, it doesn't hit us also. It's just we're naturally more skeptical, <laughs> and we and we ask follow up questions, and we are we aren't primed as well in a Pavlovian response to committing these issues. It's not that we don't have certain things that prime the left. Like if you want to get send the left into a tizzy, you can say the following words: racism. You can say oh, yeah, police yeah, brutality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like and we are like ready to go. Boom. You know what I'm saying? But however, you know, we want to look at it and then we stare at it for a little bit like, okay, maybe that wasn't a thing. And there have been attempts for them to penetrate the progressive sphere because I think the original plan was them to kind of get both sides to be a powder keg and light and then blow up. Because the whole thing, I think the original plan of like uh, the disinfo machine coming from foreign actors was chaos. They wanted chaos. They wanted to blow up, they want to destroy the democracy, they want to show destabilization, they want to show that this is a stupid thing so they don't have to keep on doing it overseas. I think that didn't go well was because, believe it or not, they had trouble penetrating African-American social media, <laughs> which is which changes so yeah. fast. No, no, we know this like was that. really overblown, right? The idea <laughs> that anyone was able to sort of change the minds of Americans through sort of a few Facebook posts, I think, has now finally kind of come apart a bit. But it's important, I think, because what you say shows that online communities actually reflect real communities and that the community itself is what's of value. So sorry, go no, ahead. No, absolutely. And I think what happened was is that they tried to do that now. And then you had this weird moment where, you know, it, it got it came to a head during the pandemic, which was this massive stress test of all political engagement where usually on the left we have face-to-face uh, -face engagement is our go-to thing, and that was taken away. And now we had to basically do what the uh, Republicans did. It's like we got to do everything on air. <laughs> like, and the Republicans are like, we're totally going to door-to-door -door because COVID is this myth, and it's no worse than the flu. So we sent people door-to-door, -door, which is how you got a election where you know the top of the ticket went in one direction, and then the bottom of the ticket went another. You know, so and that's because you had one stuff committing to the grassroots engagement and one group saying we're not going to do that. And then another group chasing the the actual uh, presidential engagement. And in my opinion, had it not been for like, you know, Trump catching covid uh, several weeks before the election, <laughs> I'm not sure we would have pulled it out. <laughs> you know, you know, that whole episode was hilarious to me. It's like, you know, I think Michael Che had a joke about it. It's like literally making a joke about belt buckles and then having your pants fall down in the middle of your set. <laughs> you know? No, honestly, I, I think 
Right. Without COVID happening, you know, Trump wins by double digits. With COVID happening, he still squeaks it out. And he actually had to get COVID. And it had to be within months of the election to lose. It was like a lot of things actually had to line up against him. Exactly. It's like, you know, it wasn't because, you know, I mean, and it upsets a lot of people inside. It's like, but when I look at the numbers, it's like we didn't win it. We just managed not to lose it. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, at yeah. no point can I say this is where we imposed our will Many on the electorate. Many of us on the show would agree with you. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah but. Um, no, 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 no. I was going to tell you something about, about Europe that's uh, interesting in terms of uh, Facebook audiences. Um, but we're talking about Trump, so I want to hear what you have to say. I want you to finish your sentence. Oh, well, I was going to say that, you know, the it it I was going to say more about the, the digital stuff and like how uh, we found out the limitations of it and basically how it does not speak to the community groups that we want. And it was a tale of two presidential campaigns for the progressive movement where like we did the opposite of what we did during the general during the RAF, the Warnock Ossoff runoff in Georgia, where we were at the doors where we were getting a lot more sophisticated digitally and that showed down ticket and that drafted heavily off of the Ahmad Aubrey work that was done previously in the southeastern part of Georgia where we were winning for the first time mainly because community groups were organizing against uh, the Ahmad Aubrey murder and lynching uh, that were African-American where the local elected said it wasn't a problem but everybody knew it was and through that organizing and work, they were able to draft off of existing community engagement and just avenues to voters who were not as activated immediately coming out in droves for Warnock and Ossoff. And I think that plus a host of things they did in the Asian American community and the Latino community put those things together and you squeak out like a 25,000 vote victory. How much do you know, because I actually use this as an example sometimes, about um – Senator uh, Ossoff's uh, congressional race in 2018, the one where he spent $60 million and lost by nine points. It was because one, those- one assumes that they were doing all of these, all, all of the right tactics that we're talking about now. One assumes. No. They, uh, they- were they actually not, or is it a question of them not working? It was, it was like, we want to run a congressional campaign, but we don't want to engage African Americans in a state that is so largely African-American. That was the first go around and learn. And he had all scaring off white suburbanites. Well, no, it's like, it just, it's like, you know, they, they felt like they didn't need to, you know, like there's this whole idea and notion in African-American engagement when it's a non African-American candidate, or even sometimes when it is African-American candidate that, the high watermark of African-American engagement would be whatever we're going to get. And they use the Obama number as the high watermark of African-American engagement. Even we know that's not the high watermark of African-American engagement. The Doug, the Doug Jones special blew that out of the water. Where like we were, you know, they said, well, you're only going to get this percentage of African-Americans. When Doug Jones had his special, the African-American voting percent was like, I think, three to four or five times higher than what Obama got during his run. And I think even the raw number might have been higher in terms of African-American votes. And it's only because they actually did the work and invested in going into those communities. And then you saw the difference in the Warnock stuff is that you also had Stacey Abrams, Fair Fight doing stuff. You had New Georgia Project doing African-American engagement. And none of those pieces of work there, plus the Ahmaud Arbery stuff, where there was all this concert years years and years of organizing and work and investment and doing the door knocking and the community engagement that is actually cross. It was like Latinos, AAPI, it was African-American and centering them and trying to engage them beforehand had a fertile ground so Ossoff could win. He did not have that before. And it was this whole white voter celebrity piece that's out there. And people have to understand Georgia used to be a democratic stronghold for a good hot minute. And Max Cleland was a legitimate senator there. And there's a reason why we haven't done there because there is no rural African-American outreach. There was no rural African-American investment. There was very little African-American voting investment for a state that had the highest number of African-American voters, highest number of unregistered African-American voters, and the highest number of African-American voters that are registered that don't vote. But yet no one would put any money in to improve those numbers for a community that 90% of them are going to throw the switch your way. 
There is no better ROI you're going to get in voting. And it took Stacey Abrams and Nse Ufat and a host of other really brilliant black women and leaders to to do that organizing work and get the investment in there to show that it pays off, which is like something that I think that you're going to see the progressive community going to have to deal with as it's there's an incredible shrinking percentage of white voters that are going to be the majority of the party. And it's not that they're trying to take place of them. It's just that we need to find the yes and conversation and do something we've never done in the history of the world is figure out how do you do a multicultural democracy? And hopefully we can figure that out because if we can't, it's going to get really ugly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very quickly. Uh, So it sounds like you are at least relatively, well, no, let me put it a different way because you're never relatively optimistic. You're a foul weather friend like myself. I like to, I like to think. Uh, So in the massive headwinds the Democrats will be facing generally and with the drag that an unpopular president will bring on that, uh, are you still bullish on Stacey Abrams in Georgia just because she does have a foundation that hopefully is sort of built out of stone and not out of straw? I've always felt that Stacey Abrams was like a good half a cycle ahead of the state. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like she is the perfect person to do it. She is absolutely what they need. I think the world of this woman. I keep wondering if they had like another half a cycle or a whole full year of organizing, she would absolutely it it would it wouldn't be the the odds would be in her favor for a change. But she's still lagging behind the 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 organizing. And it's also, you know, the voter suppression work that they're doing, the changing the campaign voter ID laws. That makes it more and more difficult on a regular basis. But now it's, you know, I feel like she's just slightly ahead. But if if there's anybody in the world that could pull this out, it absolutely would be her. It would be her team. She has some of the best and the brightest people that I think that are in progressive politics in her corner. She has she's been bringing in some of the most talented people that I respect and the the place to like do this work whereas like you know when i judge a lot of these campaigns by their back in talent and people saying jamal what were your reservations against some of those people before like in, in in the other ones like i have not seen any of those people do the things that we need them to do and um, as opposed to with the stacy abrams team i'm like i've seen these people totally pull rabbits out of the hat they have like done some amazing shit and they're going about it smart and they're going about it intelligently I still think that our data and technology need to improve on engaging people of color. And I think that is something that is lagging and we're trying to work through that now because the data targeting for people of color has always been not as accurate as we would like for the white demographics. And the main lesson that we learned from... It's sort of like heart disease. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> and the main, exactly. And so one of the main lessons we've learned about the Ossoff Warnock race was that when you can get Latinos, African Americans, and Asian American demographics and you improve your data targeting, you get a considerable lift and the margin of victory that you need to win. Because we basically made up some new stuff on the fly to improve that targeting that panned out that showed that we need to do this nationwide. And I'm, I got serious worries because we haven't figured that out in all the states. I mean, and we still haven't figured out what we're going to do about the voter suppression stuff. Beto was talking about, I'm going to run in Texas. I'm like, they threw out 20% of the absentee ballots. I'm like, what do you want me to say, man? You, you putting the cart before the horse. Like, I'm going to win. I'm like, did you fix the voter suppression thing? <laughs> what do you want me to say? Oh, my gosh. No, and it's not even centralized in the messaging, which would be which would be the other way to do it is just to make it the platform itself. Um, what advice? Here's what I wanted to, to what I want to ask you uh, at, to to close this out here. Although we will have you back very soon, um, but in Europe, Facebook has turned off um, political audiences based on um, identification of political party, and also by newspaper. Uh, this is, I think, in an effort to sort of do less of, have less of what you're describing happening in these funnels, disrupt these kind of, I can make these audiences with enough sort of effort and then, you know, bombard them with whatever. What advice do you have uh, for progressives? What would you do if you found yourself in that position, you know, organizing in Virginia or elsewhere? I am not being able to target mm-hmm. outside of culture and... Uh, 
demographic. I am I am suspicious of that, to be honest, because even if they turn off their internal selection criteria, I still believe they have something, and unless they turned it off, which I think this is what they need to check for, did they turn off custom universes? And a custom universe means that I went out and I know what people I want to target, and then I match them against Facebook, and then I send that out as an audience, which in many ways is more fucked up than the selection criteria that Facebook has, because at least you know that they pick the people who are 18, subscribe to this newspaper, and from this party, because it shows up on the why you're seeing this ad feature. If you do a custom universe... They're going to say, like, they wanted everybody who was over the 18 that lived in this country, and then they'll say, and possibly other demographic information. To me, that says it was a custom universe. And a custom universe, the only people who know who are in that universe is the people who actually matched it to Facebook's profiles, which means you can have even more fucked up shit in a custom universe than you would ever see in a Facebook selection criteria. So this is another reform online that is going to end up uh, helping the powerful and hurting the less so. Exactly. This is not a transparency move. If Facebook wanted to make the transparency, they would have the people say, like, you have to divulge what is in your custom universes if you're matching to that. And if they don't do so, it is there. There needs to be all this digital conversation is there needs to be analytics reform. And analytics is now the new segregation by computer. And it allows people to to have create new realities, allows people to be more polarizing, but it doesn't look that way from the outside because it's a custom universe. And you need people to have to expose what their model is. They should be able to, they need to register it like the patent office and say, these are the ratios and these are the people that are made up in this thing. It's like one part African-Americans, 30%, um, 30 years old or younger, plus people who are in a machinist union, uh, minus people who own a car in a suburban area, plus people who are out there and married with six kids, minus the people who are over the age of 60, who like all that stuff needs to be exposed so people can say like, oh, this is exactly who they're talking to when they're sending this ad. The corporations in them won't do it because they see it as a secret sauce. But I think they have been bad actors enough for this stuff where they don't get that latitude anymore. Totally. Yeah, you know what? (laughs) We know. (laughs) We know we get it. At some point, we get it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. As always, it is a delight, a pleasure. And I want to have a third thing because I like to make drum beats that way, but I didn't plan ahead. And so I'm just dribbling off at the end. But it's always nice to see you and we will have you on very shortly. That was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Пам'ятайте, Орбіт без цукру має чудовий смак і протидіє карісу, відновлюючи кислотно-лужний баланс після їжі. Відбудуться ігри шостої відкритої першості України з регбі за участю кращих команд Великобританії та Молдови. Захоплююче динамічне видовище чекає на вас. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Movie for a committee afternoon. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program, and this is a movie for a committee afternoon. As we said, this is a piece of pro-union propaganda. It came out in 1948 in this post-war period where there was a lot of economic chaos. Price controls were still in place because of all the rationing and materials that were needed during the war, etc. And so what you saw was a kind of three-way power struggle between 
the uh, Manufacturing Association, the NAM, the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, between the unions and between uh, OPA, who are the Price Control Administration. Uh, this is a very nice piece of pro-union propaganda that actually spends a lot of time asking questions in a way that I think makes a lot of sense in terms of getting people to come in and consume this content. Uh, anyway, it's very interesting. It's a very chaotic economic period that I think has relevance to now in a number of ways. So please take a look and enjoy The Great Swindle, 1948. Sorry, madam, only half a pound to a customer. That'll be 25 cents. But couldn't you? I'm sorry, it's share and share alike. We do have a fine margin at only 24 cents a pound. Oh, margin. <laughs> Those price controls. Is that all you've got, hamburger? First class grade, only 27 cents a pound. I don't care what it costs, I want a good steak. If this OPA, take off price controls and we'll have plenty. I don't see how it'll make the cows breed any faster. Tom Gray had his groceries for the weekend, but he hadn't found everything he wanted. Tom was a puzzled man. The war had caused shortages, he knew that. But after all these months of peace, things ought to be better. Maybe it was these price controls. Newspapers blamed the OPA. Not only one paper, or two, but practically all of them. The radio blamed OPA. Senator Daniel, Democrat, said today, and I quote, if a man owns a pound of butter, he should get all he can for it. The people were confused. You're wrong. Oh, you're wrong. Look, it's simple. The more you produce, the more you buy. Production goes up, prices come down. Yeah, but suppose the manufacturer doesn't let the prices come down. He's got to. He's got to, my foot. All right, you wait and see. You wait and see. OPA is ruining the country. OPA is saving the country. Eliminate control. Keep control. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Poor Tom, trying to escape from it all. Yes, sir. Our business leaders are not afraid to call a spade a spade. Listen, if OPA is permanently discontinued, the production of goods will mount rapidly, and through free competition, prices will quickly adjust themselves to levels that consumers are willing to pay. Bull, just plain bull. My dear boy, they know what they are talking about. They are the men who run industry. Oh, they're just a bunch of sharks. Listen, just listen to this. The members of the National Association of Manufacturers have no intention of rocking the inflation boat, now or at any other time. Oh, no, none at all. Just take off control, that's all. Why, brother, they'll skin us alive. 
Young man, you sound just like a red. These are the men that know what they're talking about. Hey, you're next, sir. I got it. Where's that brother-in-law of mine? I don't know. He should have been here half an hour ago. It's all right, sis. It's time for dinner. I'll play for him later. All right. There's no doubt about it. Those fellows know what they're talking about. Hello, dear. Where have you been? Pete's been waiting for you. Hello, Pete. Listen to this. Members of the National Association of Manufacturers That's have no... That's a pack of But look here, Pete. They show you right here. You knock off price controls and you increase production. And lower prices. It makes sense. It's bunk, Tom. Hello, Steve. But listen, Pete. These are the men that can make promises. Yeah. And break them. Okay, Katie. Let's go home. But remember, Tom, they're just giving you double talk. Yes, sir. Maybe... We could even get that car. There you go, Tom. Dreaming again. Promises and lies, big business won a Republican Congress. The Truman administration promptly fell into line. Together, they raced to scrap price controls. Big business ran America. Right into an orgy of profiteering. Prices jumped a third. Look, look, five dollars for this. It costs more every day. We need a raise. We need low prices. She's right, Pete. I'd rather have low prices than a raise. Me too. But what chance have we got of low prices or getting price controls? With this Congress, none at all. Well, we need a decent Congress, all right. You said it. But that's at least a year away. And in the meantime, what do we do? Sit on our hands? Well, it's getting worse every week. And you know it. That's true, Tom. I don't care what you say. If wages go up, prices go up. It's a vicious circle. It's economic. Nuts. It's company propaganda. Look, you come to the union hall tonight. Oh, Pete, don't start that business again. Come on, we're giving a movie tonight on that wages and prices business. Supposed to be good. Why don't you, Tom? It sounds interesting. Okay. Looks new. It is. 
Isn't that a honey? Looks complicated. Nah, baby could run it. Movies are fine thing. Folks come out to meetings. Yeah, just take a look at that crowd. Yeah. Let's get a seat. Today, people are being squeezed. Squeezed out of food, clothing, necessities, because of rising prices. Just think back to 1939 and prices at that time. A broadcloth shirt, 88 cents. A pair of shoes, $1.95. And as for food, butter, 31 cents a pound. Chuck roast, 15 cents. Then prices started upward as big business took advantage of the war. Uncle Sam established the OPA and cracked down. In 1946, controls were removed. Prices shot up. In 18 months, they went up as much as in the whole previous seven years. These prices mean big trouble to families as shown by experts from the University of California, the Heller Committee, who prepared a minimum budget for a family of four. Its standards are not very high. For example, father gets one overcoat every six years, three work shirts a year. For mother, two house dresses a year, food for a week, nine loaves of bread, less than two dozen eggs, a pound and a half of butter and oleo, Milk, a little over two quarts a day. This modest budget cost about $75 a week in January 1948. The administration considered even this budget too optimistic, so the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated a more realistic one, a little less of everything. For vacation and savings, practically nothing. This super modest budget averaged $65 in January 1948, while at the same time, manufacturing wages were around $51 a week. It's a simple, sober fact that most people cannot live on their pay because of high prices and inflation. What's the reason for inflation? Not high prices, according to the National Association of Manufacturers, who say inexpensive ads. Inflation comes when the flow of money into the market is greater than the flow of goods. The NAM says that production and incomes, or goods and money, are the controlling factors in prices. If there are more goods than dollars, prices go down. If there are more dollars than goods, prices go up. Sounds reasonable, but it's only half of the story. This explanation leaves out price fixing, monopolies, speculation, market rigging, it leaves out the basic reason for today's inflation, and that is the killing of OPA. Let's analyze this inflation business. It's important. Here is production, goods. Here is the money people get for producing. During the war, half of production was military. And while civilian goods were less, Money increased because of payments to soldiers, their dependents, and others. Here it is, less goods and more money. Prices should zoom, according to the NAM. But they didn't, because Uncle Sam established controls. People shared the goods at reasonable cost. The money which wasn't spent went into savings. This is the picture during the war. The war ended. Army goods went back to civilians. There was less money because overtime was cut. Therefore, 
money and goods were more in balance, there was less reason for inflation. With OPA continuing, savings would have gone for washing machines, houses, automobiles, and refrigerators. For many years to come, we would have had prosperity, a sound, stable prosperity. Instead, government-controlled prices were replaced by business-controlled profits. Prices went up. Wages were used for food and clothing, but wages weren't enough. Savings went for food and clothing. Ten billion savings in a year. Millions of GIs were promised this. They're getting this. Because of big business prices. The blow of inflation upon our economic security seems like an act of nature, but it actually is the result of acts by big business, and the people are beginning to discover who is responsible for inflation. To postpone this discovery, big business is putting up a barrage of propaganda. Here are their excuses. And here are the facts against them as dug out from official government sources. Excuse number one, the farmers are to blame. One of the principal causes for high prices is federal support of farm prices. The Department of Agriculture finds that of the increases in food prices in the last year, the bulk went to food trusts. And Senator Aiken of Vermont underlines the facts. It is my belief that a campaign against farmers is being indulged in to divert attention from the real profiteers in food and clothing, the speculators and commodity gamblers. Speculators. Men like Ed Pauley, oil operator, former Democratic committeeman. This man bought a half a million bushels of wheat, oats, corn. He didn't finance farmers. He didn't sow the wheat. He didn't harvest it. He didn't distribute it. He didn't even eat it. He just sat on it until a hungry world paid his price. Mr. Pauley feels no moral guilt. He was quoted by the press as saying, I dealt in everything I could make a profit in, in the good old American way. What a patriot, growing rich out of people's hunger. Mr. Pauley isn't the only profiteer. Here is a government report on the profits of the food trusts. In the past year, profits increased by as much as 320%. No wonder prices are high. One of these companies, the A&P, was charged with violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. Their extra take from housewives was estimated at $21 million. The company was found guilty and fined $175,000, cheap enough at the price. No, gentlemen of the NAM, you cannot blame farmers for the high prices. The NAM has another excuse for high prices, strikes. High prices are due to strikes. 35 million man days of production were lost last year. 35 million man days. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Yet, during the same time, illness or accidents caused this much loss to production. 600 million man days. Furthermore, in comparison to all man days worked, strike losses are practically nothing. To be exact, one-third of one percent of the total nine billion. No, gentlemen of the NAM, you cannot blame high prices on strikes. But the biggest target of the NAM propaganda is wages. Labor costs come to 85% of expenses upon which prices are based. So, naturally, if labor costs go up, prices go up. Simple arithmetic. Well, let's take a look at the miner for a concrete example. Miners average $65 a week for working underground, daily risking their lives, as in the Centralia disaster. 111 dead. 
For this kind of work, the miners got an increase of $1.20 a day. Now, let's see what happened to this increase under big business manipulation. The cost of the increase for coal produced was 40 cents per ton. For these three tons, the coal companies increased their prices by $4.50. Three tons of coal make two tons of steel. The steel companies increased their prices on two tons by as much as $20. Two tons of steel are used in the average car. Auto companies increase their prices by as much as $100. Big business doesn't know how to add. It only learned the multiplication table. No wonder prices go up. Wage increases have no relation to price increases. This is true throughout industry. Here are wage increases in typical industries. Practically all are less than 5% of the price increases. And now, keeping the same scale for easy comparison, take a look at the price increases. The facts are obvious. There is no relation between wages and prices, as economic experts have known for a long time. No, gentlemen of the NAM, wage increases are not responsible for price increases. Let's see what is responsible for high prices. Auto increased its prices more than steel, and steel more than coal. Why? The answer lies in the degree of monopoly which industry. Let's examine these industries more closely. Take the three largest producers in each. In coal mining, the three largest companies produce only 7% of all coal. In steel, the largest three produce 60% of the total. In auto, the largest three produce 90% of all cars. In other words, the auto industry is controlled by a few companies. The coal industry is not. Coal mining is very competitive. Auto is monopolistic. As a result, they can and do charge more. They can and do make bigger profits. Take the profit level at 100 for 1946 and compare 1947. In coal mining, profits up 56%. In steel, up 84%. In auto, up 125%. These increases in profits are not unusual. Throughout all industries, profits are incredible. Here is the golden year of American business, 1929. Now let's compare the last five years with 1929. The war years were very profitable. American manhood suffered a million casualties, but corporations averaged nearly 10 billion a year. Then in 1946, big business broke all profit records, and in 1947, the take was out of this world, $17 billion. In two years, corporations cleared $29.5 billion, net. In two years, big business collected for themselves as much money as was collected by the entire federal government of the United States from taxpayers from the time of George Washington to that of Herbie Hoover. A total of 140 years. No wonder prices are up. These profits are so outrageous that big business is trying to minimize them through a huge campaign of ads and pamphlets. Typical is this pamphlet of the NAM, which is based on their latest propaganda trick, the argument of the sales dollar. To show up this phony argument, let's take Armour & Company as an example. According to the company figures, they make only a couple of pennies on each dollar of sales. Aside from these two and a half cents, all of the dollar is going to pay for labor and plant and materials and supplies of all kinds connected with the job of giving you meat. Therefore, says Armour, they only make 2.6% profit, which is very low. 
Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But it's phony. Most of this dollar is spent before armor begins working, which is right here. This part of the dollar is paying for activities that have nothing to do with armor or meat processing. This part is paying for armor's operations. And when we look at it closely, we find that for its work in processing meat, armor gets two and a half cents, all right. But these few little pennies represent a profit to armor of 17% on the value of their work. And 17% for each armor dollar is a very high rate of profit. But armor isn't the only profiteer in this picture. Let's examine what goes on before processing. Here are the cattle that provide the meat for your table. Producing these cattle involves nearly the whole economy of the United States. Just to give an idea, it takes grain to feed the cattle. It takes tractors to plow the fields that raise the grain. And refineries to make gas for the tractors. And steel and cement to build refineries. And the railways to carry the steel and cement and the gas and the tractors and the grain and the cattle. And the banks to finance everything. All during these activities, profits are being made big profits, as big as armors, and that is why the price of meat is so high. The sales dollar argument hides all these profits. Profit must be figured on the basis of investment. That's what profit means to a banker, to an economist, to a businessman. GE is a good example which shows why. Let's take 1933 and 1947, a depression year and a boom year. In 1947, they made nearly six times as much. Here are their profits, no question about it. GE is making much more money now than in 1933. Now, here are their sales in 1933, and here are the sales in 1947. The sales dollar argument gives GE 10% profit in 1933, only 7% in 1947. In 1933, GE actually had a higher rate of profit. Maybe they ought to go back to the Depression. Silly, isn't it? Now take profits again and compare them to investments, as bankers do. It's a different picture. Profit rate in 1947 is 20%. Practically five times above 1933. This makes sense. Very high volume of profits, a very high profit rate. Everybody's happy except the consumer. The unreasonable degree of profiteering is shown by the amount of money made on each worker. Here's the total of GE profits before taxes. Here are Westinghouse profits. And here are General Motors, a grand total of $742 million. These three corporations employ over half a million people, a total of 640,000 workers. For every worker, therefore, these companies make $20 a week profits, $20 a week on every worker every week. The average wage at this time was about $51. For every $5 in wages, the companies made $2 in profits. You would think these companies would be ashamed of themselves. But big business has no shame, for big business has no soul. It's out for profits, big profits, and cares nothing for people's needs. Profits which they make through controls, direct controls and indirect controls, but always real controls over the whole economy of the United States. We know the facts of this picture thanks to the investigations of the Roosevelt administration. Eight big business groups control over 30% of all the assets of the United States, the heart of the economy. Said Wendell Burge, once head of the government's antitrust division. Of the 100 largest corporations in the United States, 44 are now defendants in antitrust suits. Because of their ability to manipulate, inflation is enriching the monopolies. It is hurting the people. It must be stopped. We, the people, can and must call a halt to this arrogant misuse of power.
Democracy demands the defeat of monopolies and the monopoly power. The people can do it. The people will do it. Easy to say, but hard to do. Reaction towers over our daily lives, seemingly all-powerful. Yet there is a mightier power, a power far greater than wealth, the power of people. Organized and united, widespread organization built up through years of hard work, giving the working man strength at the bargaining table, some voice in his pay envelope, a degree of economic security. This ability to organize and fight is rooted in our political freedom. Today, this freedom is in jeopardy. Reactionary representatives in Congress are fronting for corporations in their attack against labor in their attack against the people through the Taft-Hartley Act, through the attacks on civil liberties, the jail sentences, the contempt charges, the deportation proceedings. These men must be replaced. We must act. We must vote. We must preserve our great democratic tradition by electing men whose first concern is the welfare of the people. We need such men. Men of conviction, not puppets of military brass hats and Wall Street profiteers. We need leaders with a deep abiding sense of democracy and decency. Today, only the political victory of progressive Americans can assure peace and prosperity for the nation. A happy life for ourselves and our children. A future we can face with confidence. So it's interesting stuff, right? It's an excellent, excellent piece of propaganda. And I like the way that it, it does so much to ask questions in the beginning and make you feel comfortable as a viewer who might not be so informed on the issue, right? It's a gentle way in, and that's good. I would also add here from our vintage point in Europe, this kind of need of or want of unions to advance workers' cause outside of government controls, thinking they can get a better deal because of their knowledge of the industry, their knowledge of what wages should be. You see this in places like Sweden now where uh, where they resist uh, the European Union's attempt to make minimum wages because they think that they can get a better deal for the working people in Sweden through collective bargaining. Anyway, it's a lot to think about, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much again for joining us tonight on the committee program. You can always support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash committee program. You can follow us on all of our social media accounts, including on Twitter at committee pro, YouTube, the committee program, Instagram, the committee program, Facebook, the committee program. And you can actually visit the committee program company store now at tpublic the committee program shop. We have a couple of things. We will try to get some more. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javak Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Lovett, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Try and look alive out there, folks. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening.
This was the sixth program in our second series. For more global infotainment from the committee program, click on the video screen right or screen left. Please like and subscribe to the committee program on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. Central European time.